welcome to Dental Emergencies. Uh, we're, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. And uh, uh, Dr. Sam Melinda and myself will be co-teaching and, and co-training. And uh, the years that I was in dental practice uh, up, up in Ohio, I relied on my oral surgeon a lot and uh, had a great relationship there. And then when I ended up in Africa there by myself, I no longer had that oral surgeon to rely on and had to uh, figure out a few uh, additional procedures myself, but but today, fortunately, I'm again in, in a situation where uh, I'm able to rely on my good oral surgeon friend to co-present with me. And so we want to talk about dental emergencies, and then we added the importance of understanding the local healthcare system, because whether we're you know a long-term missionary dentist physician or whether we're going on short-term trips, I think it's critical. It's important that we understand the healthcare system that we're operating in while we're there and doing training. So we're going to spend just a few minutes doing an overview of that system, and then Dr. Malin's going to come and talk about how we handle some actual emergencies. You know, as we're working with our partners and different patient, different folks that are there, you know, we understand that we have an impact on the patient. Uh, that, that's very foremost uh, probably in most of our minds. It's the reason uh, that so many of us are involved in missions. Uh, God's given us a call, uh, a really heart to see uh, people know him, and he's given us this ability to go and, and use our skills. And so if you were here last night, you understood as well that sometimes we can go in and the impact that we can have can have a negative Effect as well, and so we want to understand that uh, that that is is part of what we're doing, and so we need to evaluate that whole whole picture. The impact that we have uh, on the patient certainly uh, is often our driving force, but we also know that we also have an impact on our local partners, whether that's a national church, a local hospital, and the situation that we're going in there. And 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 we have different impacts depending on what our role is. If we're a long-term missionary that, that's working there. Uh, certainly the impact that we can have can, can be quite different. We have opportunity to really build relationships over time, begin to understand the culture, the operating, what, what worldview uh, that the folks that we're interacting with are, are operating from. Uh, and short term, we also have tremendous impact. And one of the things that we want to keep in mind is that when we leave, that impact often continues. Uh, I'm reminded of a time when, when I was doing a, an assessment in, in the country of Guinea, and we were looking at uh, the possibility of beginning a clinic. And there had been a team uh, through this village uh, about a year and a half prior to that, uh, had been a dental team and, and treated patients there. Within a week after uh, the dental team left, uh, one of the dental patients died. And so... The reason for that, uh, uh, you know, is not clear, but in the minds of that particular village uh, working in a, in a kind of a closed area, it was a direct result of the dental care and the team, the local uh, group that brought them in there was responsible for that. That dentist today still has no idea that that patient died because the local partner is not going to tell them. They're not going to carry that. They don't want to share that burden. So we want to realize that, that what we do continues to have an impact after we, after we leave. And so we want to also protect our local partners um, from some potential harm that might come their way. Uh, another area where we have impact is on local providers. Um, you know, I, I was a dentist in Warren, Ohio for 10 years, a small town up in northeast. And, uh, you know, what if a, what, what if a group of, uh, of dentists came in from some wealthy country, Dubai or Switzerland someplace? You know, they came in, and they were specialists in crown and bridge and implant dentistry. And so two weeks, twice a year, they come into Warren, Ohio, and provide free implants, 
free crown and bridge, you know, reconstruction, and they return twice a year over a period of 10 years. You know, what's that impact uh, on me and, and, and on my practice? And so what we do uh, does have an impact on the local providers, and we need to understand what that is and how that affects them and how we can work together to uh, provide better services. And then, of course, community leaders, those, those that are leading, the governors, the mayors of the towns that we're working with, um, they want to have a good relationship with us. They want to have some credit for bringing in and, and uh, doing that. So as we build those relationships, we have an impact on all of that. And so one of the ways that we can maximize our impact is by understanding and working with the local health care system. And so I want to provide just a real quick overview of what that looks like. In most developing countries, there's a clear protocol on how referrals occur. Um, you start with the primary uh, health care centers that are there. They refer to the uh, health centers down to the regional hospitals, and then eventually, if it's critical enough, specialized enough, up to the national health care system in that country. The office that's responsible for all the health care in a country, and one of the countries that I spent uh, considerable time in, was the country of Mali. And so Mr. Usman Kone is the Minister of Health uh, for the country of Mali. And the, the Ministry of Health is responsible for all health care that goes on in that country. So he's responsible for every hospital. He's responsible for all the WHO demands uh, for reports uh, coming in. He's, he's in a country where uh, poverty reigns, where maternity and infant mortality are super high. And so he's got all these responsibilities for increasing the health of, of his country. And so he's got, a, uh, this is his organizational chart, so he's got directors at, at various levels at the seven regional hospitals. It goes down from there. He's got his community health workers that are fanned out throughout the country, and he's got the, his medical directors at various areas throughout there. He's also the guy that approves whether or not your team gets in um, when you're doing that. And so if you think of the, the scope of responsibility that uh, Mr. Kone has, you know, the fact that we're going in and, and want to provide care for a week or two is not very significant on the plate of responsibility that he has. But it becomes significant if we cause him additional work and additional heartaches. And so we want to kind of keep in mind that responsibility and that, that uh, outreach. So the Ministry of Health is responsible for this network, and there's a referral protocol uh, within these countries where we're working. And, and so that first level, base level, is, is the community health center level. And this is where most of the health care in the, in the country takes place. This is where uh, workers or, or patients go for the first line of defense. Often there's one or two health care workers that might be there. Uh, maybe they have a nurse, often a nurse's assistant type uh, of care. And this is a, a picture to one of our centers in Mali. It's uh, down around the sorghum field, 150 uh, meters around there. There's a little building, and that's where the primary health care uh, takes place. Then we go up to referral centers, and at the referral centers, they may have a full-time nurse. Uh, they may even have a lab technician do some basic tests, often have an ambulance uh, for going back and forth. And so this is a center with their ambulance, uh, Sol Peugeot, that's been working for about 50 years, uh, uh, transporting patients uh, back and forth uh, between the, the primary center and, and this uh, as referrals are needed. As we build on that, uh, the referral hospitals are the place where we first start to see, in, in most developing countries, dental care as part of 
the programmed uh, care at the, at the hospital. This is uh, uh, Timbuktu Regional Hospital up in uh, the northern part of Mali. And, uh, and, and we can begin to see specialized care, surgery, and, and all of that that begins to, to take place at, at this level. And then the final level is, is uh, teaching hospitals and, and the main referral hospitals, usually that take place uh, located um, in the capital and doing that. So understanding, you know, where it is that we intersect with that. And so this is the government system. They've got alongside of this primary clinics and, and, and other things that are going understanding. And it becomes difficult to know if you're a visitor coming in, you know, where is it that you connect and, and intercept? Where do you refer and, and how do you do that? And so you don't need to read through all of this. I put it up here because it's uh, pretty involved. But it says uh, from WHO that changes in that protocol, that referral protocol, can be made under certain factors. But all of those factors are based on knowledge of who and what is available at the various centers that do it. So sometimes they, they bypass because the, the local health care workers understand that better care could be taken care of. They, yeah, there's, there's dental at, that, uh, at the regional hospital there, but they never have dental anesthetic. So we're not going to refer there. We're going to do this. And the point is that, you know, we can't know all of these things as visitors and, and going in there. And so it's important that we rely on the local healthcare folks uh, to help us determine that. So how do we maximize the positive? Proper paperwork prior to arrival. The Minister of Health, let's make his job easy. Let's be in there uh, doing what we're supposed to be doing and, and being in the country legally uh, providing care. The other one is visit the local healthcare official when you get there. That person's there. Sit down with them. He's the one, she's the one that's going to be able to tell you what to do, where to refer, how to interact within their care and system that's there. And then also we always try to encourage it to work with uh, the local provider in that area. Get together. Invite them to work together. Understand who their patient base is. Are you treating the same patient base? Is there an unreached population that you might be better off uh, going in and working at? And, and so as we go, we want to know and determine the course of action for these three things. We want to know what happens to the patients that come to our clinic that we can't see. Where do we refer them to? We need to know that before we start treating. What about for patients that are going to need a follow-up procedure? Uh, we start something. Sutures need to be removed. Other things need to be done. There needs to be some type of follow-up. Who begins and, and who sees those patients? And then what happens uh, to complications that arise, as in the case in Guinea, uh, you know, what's the protocol? Where are those patients going to be referred? And the way that we know that is by talking with the local health professionals and working with the local providers. You know, sometimes our, our, our local partners want to help us and they want to help their community, but they don't always understand the medical system and, and how best to interact with that. So we need to work with them and work with the local providers so that we can best uh, understand where it is and be prepared so that when a complication arises, it's not a surprise. We've already talked with the local health professional, and he's already advised us on how that, how that takes place. So he becomes our advocate after we leave in providing treatment that's ongoing and, and needed for our care. And so you know, understanding a little bit about the system, that's an overview. Every country has a little bit of a different variation on that, but I think it's important that, that we understand and, uh, and know how that we can begin to think about interacting with those countries. I want to invite Dr. Melinda if you come up now and, uh, and talk to us a little bit more specifically about dental emergencies uh, within our – I want to need just a second here to switch over. A quick uh, changed artist here. I told him, I said, look, don't, let's not worry about changing over. Why don't we do this? You can be the ventriloquist. 
But he didn't want to do that. So. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, it's very important, some of the things that uh, have been mentioned uh, by Jeff, also because of the team. You may have someone on your team that uh, has uh, acute uh, sort of angina, atypical angina. They may have a, uh, an MI during your experience there. Well, where do you send them? Where do they go? Is there a place? What do you have to do? Do you have a medical emergency kit that's in your, with your team when they go out? So that those kind of things, medications that are immediately needed for a medical emergency within your team, an acute allergic reaction, all those kind of things, can they be taken care of by your team? And if they need to be referred, what about the hospitals in the area? What kind of research do you folks do before you go out to an area and understand? And how are you working with that, the, the people that are, that are involved there? Well, I thought one of the things that we do, we're always looking at taking care of pain and infection and, and trying to relieve that. So we see patients that come in, usually don't have care, and they've, they, they often have a, a facial swelling. Well, of course, one of the things that's important, this is a facial cellulitis. You know, a cellulitis is from what organism usually? Staph? Strep. Right, the spreading factor, correct? So you get a lot of edema. You get a lot of spread rapidly. It comes on acutely. And there are certain things what we need to know about those kind of things. They're, they're, they're very uncomfortable. They can limit motion. You can have sort of trismus with the cellulitis. It doesn't have to be an abscess to have cellulitis or re and, and then restricted motion. So you can see that there are uh, unhappy campers along the way. But as this goes on, the cellulitis becomes very hard. The harder the cellulitis, the firmer the cellulitis, the more intense it is and the more concerned you become because it's becoming localized and you're going to find out that you develop an abscess. Okay, well, this happens to be an area where there's an abscess. What's the treatment for an abscess, by the way? IND, absolutely. I mean, why? Because now you've got an, an area of infection without good circulation. You've got bacteria in there, breakdown cells. You've got fluid. So, you can give a lot of antibiotics, but if you still have an abscess cavity that's not drained, there's, there's a big problem. So here's a gentleman that has that. Now, the question is, how do you get anesthesia when you have someone with a fat lip and he needs to get uh, an IND? Well, one of the ways of doing that easily is to try and go in that area between where the... Um, Let's see if I can find that one. Between where the abscess is, which is deep in that area, and go superficially, infiltrate and blanch the tissue. So you haven't gone right in there. Now, why don't you inject into the abscess? An abscess is what? Basic or acid? It's acid. Okay? It's acetic. And what's an anesthetic? It's a basic salt. So what happens when you have an acid and base? You have a neutral salt. wonder why the anesthesia doesn't work. 
So that's one of the problems. But what's the other problem? The other problem is that uh, you spread the abscess. You're for, putting force up in the tissues. You're injecting. You're spreading the tissue planes. You're spreading the infection. So you don't want to inject into an abscess. So here we are injecting just in that superficial area. You wait a while. You see it blanch. It's an excellent spot then. So you're going to do an IND there, and you get your, your drainage done. Are you finished? No, you're not finished. There are a couple things that you can do. Obviously, one of them is to not only establish drainage. Let me get to the right area there. Woo. Not only to establish drainage in, in that area, but this is a little bit more difficult. This is in the lower jaw, and that's why I put that there. Because drainage is a little more difficult to establish in the lower, that's very dependent up there. So you can place a drain in that area to keep that open. You don't want that area that you incise to, to go up. You want to come in and you want to uh, use – where is the pointer on that? Is that in the middle? Okay. You, you don't uh, – after you do your IND, you want to go in and sort of break up any loculations that are in that abscess cavity. Uh, because there can be some areas of the abscess, particularly if it's been there quite a while, where there's some loculations and it's separated and you won't get all the drainage. In order to do that, it's, you can irrigate with your local anesthetic after you get the drainage. So, because now, but in the lower jaw, what can you do? You can give a block anesthetic. So, you really, you, you're away from the area of infection. You can give a block anesthetic. In the maxilla, you can also do a second division block, you know, through the uh, posterior palatine foramen. And then you can block that area. So we're always thinking, how can we be away from that area on the field? How can we give uh, an anesthetic that's going to work? And how can we utilize all those kind of things? Here, particularly, after you break up the loculations, you, try, you, you irrigate a little bit, you flush that area out, and, and now, basically, you're going to place a drain in there. But you don't have a drain. Nobody brought a Penrose drain. What are you going to do? Use, use, use a, if you have Dwayne with you, you can say, hey, Dwayne, give me a piece of your rubber dam. <laughs> but even a lot of the guys on the field, they don't have a rubber dam. Uh, they're, they're not the artists and the, and the, the, the A1 uh, dentists that out on the mission field sometimes at Duane is. So what do you do? You cut a finger off of your glove, one of your gloves, and you put your uh, hemostat in the center of that finger, and you stretch it over the hemostat. You push it down in there. You let it go and pull your thing out, and now you have a drain that's in there, uh, and, and you put a suture to just hold it. You do need someone to take that out, but you need to have it in there for at least 24 hours or so to get all that drainage uh, out of there. And so that really, the incision and drainage is a very important sort of area. In the submandibular area, you can see this is a very dependent area. And you can 
certainly make a, an incision through the skin and subcutaneous tissue, the platysma muscle, and are in there. The same principles involved wherever they are. And, and I, I just wanted you to realize and understand that infection in a maxillary tooth has a lot of places to go. Remember, it can go into the maxillary sinus. It can come out into the uh, buccal vestibule. It can come out above the buccinator muscle into the, into the cheek. And uh, in that area, it can go out into the temporal fascia. It can go uh, into the palate. And that's the maxillary tooth. In the other way, it can go in above the mylohyoid into the floor of the mouth, below the mylohyoid, goes into the submandibular space. So there's a lot of areas where the infection can go, and it's going to go in the path of least resistance. So those kind of things we need to know. And we know how pericoronitis around a tooth can be a very uh, dangerous kind of thing, particularly in developing countries. Because you get that infection, and it goes back, and it becomes a peritonsillar abscess. It goes back into this area and starts to cause trismus and, uh, uh, around the uh, medial pterygoid. And, and then, of course, it can go outside and, and go into the cheek. So there's a lot of areas that, be, that it can become involved in the fascial planes and become a serious infection, and it just starts out, you know, from a pericoronitis. So those things can, can occur in many areas. Well, here's a, here's a patient who, who uh, has actually an abscess on both sides of the maxilla from the same area. There's a palatal abscess. And there's a buccal aspect of the abscess. In other words, it's through and through. So sometimes uh, those, those situations occur. And when that occurs, then, too, you want to, you know, get back as far as you can, you, away from the abscess, do a posterior palatine uh, second division block. You'll get this area. You'll get this area. And, and from that, and actually use a long needle, in that, in that uh, posterior palatine foramen, go all the way almost up to the, the hub, injecting a little bit at a time, and you'll get the, the second division block. And you, uh, at, that, at that point, you have access to both areas to drain. What's really important about those things is when we see them sort of in our, in, in, in our culture, in our time, when that heals, let's say we're going to save that tooth and we're going to do endodontics. What's important for the patient to know? That they're always going to have a dark area that's through there. It's a through and through lesion. You've lost all the bone. Even when that heals, the bone area is going to heal down, but there's going to be a dark. What does that mean? He goes to a new dentist and he says, oh, you've got a problem. You know, you've got this big area here. You say, well, I don't know about that, but the dentist told me that you know, I'm always going to have a radiolucent area around that area because I lost bone all the way through. So asymptomatic, the, the x-ray uh, demonstrates an area, but it will always have an area there. So anyhow, we're iodine. We're using the same kind of procedure. We see that in young children with, uh, you know, granulation tissue and, and a chronic abscess around a tooth. Uh, we see that fistula often with young children and, and some drainage that's, that's in there. In most of those cases, if we take the tooth out, 
that'll that'll be enough. We don't use to have to do an IND. See, I was going to ask you any thoughts on when you would do an IND versus when you would take the tooth out. Rationale for one person. Yeah. Well, actually, it, it, there's there's two thoughts in mind. First of all, can you get the tooth out easily? Let's say it's a impacted third molar and there's pericoronitis, and if you can get anesthesia, good anesthesia, if you can get the tooth out easily, that's a good, good way to do it. But it does not take the place of an incision and drainage. For example, you can take the tooth out. That's the cause of the problem. But the infection is already out of the bone. The horse is out of the barn. And what's going to happen, you can take the tooth out, but you haven't solved the problem. Now you can have acute dental alveolar abscess where the tooth is abscessed, but there is no swelling, no cellulitis, no abscess formation. Taking the tooth out will, I mean, what, what is the treatment for an abscessed tooth? The treatment for an abscessed tooth is to get the infected nerve out. Now you can do that by taking the tooth out or you can do that by endodontics. Isn't that right? You can, you can do a root canal or you can take the tooth out. But that's the treatment to get the infected nerve out of there. And, and what, but once that infection has gotten out into the bone and out into the soft tissue, it's already out of the area. So you have to treat it with antibiotics and you have to get the tooth out if that's the ultimate treatment, you know, to get the tooth out. So, um, if, if you can get the tooth out easily, that's great. Here's an individual that's had an IND a number of times. Uh, unfortunately, the physician thought that it was a facial, furuncal, cellulitis, abscess uh, locally. And uh, with a number of these areas there, I was very concerned about, and you can see them, histoplasmosis because you often see histoplasmosis have multiple draining sites within, within one lesion. But uh, this was actually an, an oral cutaneous fistula. I, I've, I've seen that in many, many countries uh, with INDs, with people not looking in the mouth because of uh, many reasons. So here's basically one that was, came into my office and uh, the dermatologist said he had treated it a number of times, and it, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't heal. What do you think's going on here? He said, I see no tooth that this could be a problem with. So we took an x-ray, and he's right. He didn't see a tooth. <laughs> so, but, but you see, that's why it's important to, to take radiographs. And years ago, I mean, on the mission field, we had no way of taking an x-ray. But we've got some ways now, and I'll take a look, and I'll show you that before we're finished. But anyhow, that's, a, that's an abscess. And so I sent it back to the local dentist and said, uh, take that tooth out for me. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> There's no monkeying around when you get in that spot. You know what I mean? Anyhow, um, there are some, uh, you know, need to know your anatomy well. And, for example, when you're going in, 
to do a draining in the submandibular area, you, you want to make a, an incision through the skin and the subcutaneous tissue uh, down to the fascia of the uh, platysma and then use a blunt dissection because you, you want to come go through that area with the hemostat and open it up and go further because it's poor procedure to get extensive bleeding from that anterior facial vein and, and uh, some of the other vital structures that are in there that you could damage and that are displaced from their normal anatomy because of the swelling and because of the infection. So you do need to be careful with external INDs much more than you would in the, in, in the mouth area. And, and, of course, sometimes all the facial swellings and all the abscesses that we see are not related to a dental infection. Here's a, a, a woman that I said, well, show me where this, this uh, is actually bothering you. So she, where am I? Hey, right back here. So she uh, put her fingers in there. Good gracious. It's exactly the opposite of my, there we go. Sorry about that. She put her hand in there and, and uh, looked at it, and there was pus just draining out of the parotid area, although this is an area with the submandibular uh, swelling. So you have to be sort of very careful as you examine things. Does this, is this a salivary gland infection? Is it a stone? Is it retrograde infection of the gland? And where, where actually is the infection coming from and, and, and those kind of things. And I know you're very much aware of that. So we'll talk about, just quickly, cellulitis. There's pain, swelling, warmth, erythema. Uh, and like I say, the loss of function, trismus. Often we think that only an abscess can cause uh, trismus, but that is not true. Uh, uh, cellulitis can cause a lot of trismus. And the more severe it is, the firmer the cellulitis is. The softer it is, the, the less severe it is. How, why is that important? Well, you make a decision on whether you're going to use an oral antibiotic, you're going to use IM, or you're going to use IV. What kind of blood levels do you need? And what kind of antibiotic are you going to use? And has someone been on an antibiotic before? That may very well change what kind of antibiotic you put them on. How long have they been on that antibiotic? How, when did this sort of come up? So there's a lot of things you need to consider in terms of that. Clindomycin is a very good one to have on the field with you, particularly for that patient that, that uh, you would need to get a good blood level with PO antibiotics. You need to take care of gram-positive uh, rods, gram-negative rods, and uh, anaerobic organisms. Uh, clindomycin is a good second choice after still the primary choice, amoxicillin. And it should always be at the level of at least 500 milligrams three times a day. You're dealing with an infection. You want to put it on the ropes and you want to knock it out. That's as l the least you can do. You don't want to start out with 250 milligrams and make sure that the, any resistant organisms you've created and you're fooling around. There's no fooling around in these situations. Remember that whatever you leave behind, other people have to take up and, 
and try and take care of. So that's so important for you to do. This is a little young fellow that I met in Afghanistan. He's not a happy camper. He has a, a, a facial cellulitis on, on that side. I tried as much as I could to make him smile. He didn't smile until the swelling went down. So <laughs> anyhow, um, there are also abscess formations. And fortunately today we do not see a lot of cases like this. This is a, a Ludwig's angina, <clears throat> severe uh, propagation of infection, floor of the mouth, tongue largely swollen, difficult swallowing, difficulty breathing, and so forth. So it is a very serious, rapidly progressive, multi-factorial uh, infection that we need to establish drainage, we need to establish irrigation, we need to establish an airway, and so this is obviously a serious uh, kind of dental thing. It's probably the extreme of the infections that, that we see. Uh, fluctuance is one of the things we talk about with, with infections, but as deep uh, fascial plane infections occur, often you don't feel the fluctuance. It's deep. You're trying to get a good history. You may have a question about it. How do you find out? Do you think there's an abscess? You're not sure there's an abscess. You're out in the field. What do you do? That's a good idea. Carefully. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you could take a needle, stick it in, and gently aspirate and see if you can find, uh, see if there's pus in there. Hopefully, your, your, your act, you know, your, your, uh, sort of aim is good and you're, you're in the right area and you can, you can try and miss. So it's, that's not 100%. What's another way? Ultrasound. Very good. We, we use ultrasound often. Sonocyte, uh, portable. You may have it on your team with the rest of the medical team and we use that. I had a patient, uh, in Africa that, that had tremendous trismus, didn't, couldn't get an x-ray. Didn't know if there was an abscess formation. Didn't you know? And and we uh, we just ran them through ultrasound, and uh, that was a big help in giving me some wisdom and insight into whether I needed to do an immediate I and D, or whether we needed to go ahead and and uh, use uh, intravenous antibiotics and so forth. So we did that every day. Had them back, gave them a load of intravenous antibiotics, some IM, and so forth, keeping the blood level up very high so that we were able to get rid of that. And we could do it with a fair assurance that the ultrasound showed us that there was no abscess uh, latent in, in, that, in that area. So uh, the infections can be great. Now, this is another area. You might not see this uh, in, in, uh, in, in Africa, but in some areas. You know what that is? That little guy bit on an electric cord. Now, you know, looking at that, you say, that's a nasty burn, and it's got to be reconstructed, and you're right. But the problem here is that the burn extends far beyond the area of involvement. In other words, we look at it, and it looks like this, and it, but this is right after the, burn, the, the electrical burn. And the, the, the area of instruction, a destruction goes far beyond that. 
So what can happen? You send this kid home and you say, everything's fine. You go home. Well, that area erodes. The tissue has necrosis. And the superior labial artery is eroded. And mommy wakes up and the kid is dead in the morning. You know, we don't have the same blood volume as these little ones do. And so it is very possible this is a serious kind of problem, needs to be monitored, or you need to enter into it uh, as soon as possible with a surgical correction for the necrotic tissue and clamp and tie the vessel, do a, an anastomosis of the tissue, you know, uh, cosmetically and so forth. But usually like to wait until the full extent of the burn and damage is seen, if we can. So, but the, this, is, this little guy is not out of the woods, so to speak, at this point. And so it's important for you to understand that those kind of things happen, and it's, and it's very dangerous. Some people, of course, have soft tissue injuries, might have been hit with a, a something, a, a tree limb, a machete, or any kind of injuries like that. And, of course, when you've got that, you've got loose teeth, you know, teeth that are, out of the socket, you may have people that are, have, have been unconscious. Uh, if you have a way of getting an x-ray, you can see alveolar fractures. You can see a tooth out of the socket area itself. You can see some teeth that are displaced. And so it's, it's really important for you to understand the full sort of extent of the, of the injuries as much as you can. Uh, here is a patient that came in with a really ugly-looking lesion that uh, appeared uh, indurated in the borders, swollen. Uh, you can also see the ulcer in the, in the center. And so these are areas you become very concerned about, and it requires a very complete examination of the patient to understand what, what really is the, is the problem. Many of these people have had... Uh, bad teeth, quote, unquote, for a long time. And so did this guy. So as we uh, looked at things, there was a tooth down here that didn't look very healthy, and it, it sort of meshed up with things. And uh, we took that tooth out. And you, you can see that it probably needed to come out. I was going to send it to Dwayne to restore. He'd make that thing look wonderful. Of course, it wouldn't last long, but we, <laughs> no. Uh, anyhow, this is that area, that lesion, in 10 days. 10 days after the irritation was removed. So, I mean, you, you need to be very, you can see some very ugly uh, kinds of things that, that occur uh, just because of, of the chronic irritation. Now, we talked a lot about facial injuries and, and some fractures and things like that. This is probably not something you're going to see in the uh, – thanks, partner uh, – in the uh, areas where you're going to be operating. But it requires a lot of, of reconstructing effort, as you can see. But if something came in there, how are you going to know where they might be able to handle that problem? You might be responsible to stop the bleeding, establish an airway, and so forth, but you're not going to be able to do anything further. 
So how are we going to do that if we don't attend to the details in the Ministry of Health and the other areas? Where's the referral hospital? How do they get there? Who's going to be responsible? How are you going to do a transfer? Who has ambulance, etc.? I mean, all of a sudden you're, ah, yeah, ah, ah, ooh, you know? And you know when that happens, there's more problems that occur because you have a patient that may not make it if you're not, you know, paying attention to his care and being able to know what to do. This is not a, an, an easy case to deal with. Now, in our, in our teams, here's one other thing, and I'm going to try and move real quickly. You'd think this isn't dangerous. You'd think all those instruments aren't dangerous. And yet, you know what? I see teams going out into Africa and other areas, 20 25% of the population with HIV, and they don't have a prophylactic chemotherapeutic agent for HIV with them. And so you get a neater stick, you cut your finger, the explorer slips and goes into your finger. Hello, what do you do? What's your protocol? There's a dental emergency for you. You've just spent a lot of money, a lot of time. You're trained. What now? When you go home with HIV and you may not be able to practice in the future. Who knows? How are you prepared? Well, I think it's important for years, uh, Global Health Outreach, and we, we, we have had a protocol. You see a patient like that. Does that arouse your suspicion? What's he got, a bad bruise? His, his denture doesn't fit? What's the problem? HIV. HIV. Right, Kaposi's sarcoma. And, of course, today we see... Unfortunately, a lot of sexually transmitted diseases because of oral sex. And this is a patient with a syphletic gumma that's, that's on the side of the tongue. Is that contagious? Is that infectious? Yeah. If you do a blood test for syphilis for them, is it positive? Not necessarily. If you do a, a, a smear to look at it under the microscope, if that area isn't dry, you've got spirochetes in your mouth. Oh, I shouldn't have said that, should I? No. Spirochetes in the mouth are normal inhabitants, and you can't tell. So you have to have that area dry. You have to do a smear, a, 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 a wet smear under the microscope, make a diagnosis. And some of these areas we're seeing more and more. We're in an epidemic right now of uh, human papillomavirus cancers. 43,000 in 2013. And the thought was that one out of, uh, or I should say three out of four people at some point in their life will become positive for human papillomavirus somewhere. I can't believe that that statistic is correct, but that's, that's what I've heard. So we're, we're in some very serious times now. This is going to quadruple the number of oral cancers and oral pharyngeal cancers that we see. But anyhow, don't chase zebras. But when you see a problem like that in terms of 
HIV have a protocol that's established. And basically, the basic protocol says using Combivar, which is the combination drug in, in the proper dosage, have a, a way on your team to test the source, the patient. Before you start on some of the medication, you need to have a rapid HIV test for whole blood so that you can do it, put a buffer in, and within like 10 minutes, you know if this patient is presumptively HIV positive. Why is that important? You want to make sure the patient doesn't get away. You know the source. You need to find out because there's a lot of complications with Combivar or any any retroviral agents. I mean, in a sense of liver, kidney disease, kidney problems, I should say, from the, from the drug. Many people that start it don't finish a four-week trial. It's too much for them. And so, but... From the standpoint of you being a practitioner, when can you start it? When do you need to start it? If you have to start it. Within how long? One hour is correct. Within one hour is your basic time. Unfortunately, it doesn't make any difference how you clean the wound. Uh, you don't have to put the, uh, you know, bleach on it and... Scrub it with a, it doesn't make any, you're, you've had it. You need to clean the wound, you, you can bandage it, but there is no evidence that what you use on the wound, although you need to take care of it, is going to be important. But you need a regime. And to get the person started, get them back home, get their tests at home as well, and follow up after this is started so that you can, you have someone who is following the, the, the dentist or the physician after that, the two most dangerous spots on the team, OBGYN and dental surgery. They're the two most difficult areas. So, therefore, you need that kind of uh, chemoprophylaxis. And if the source is negative, obviously, you breathe a lot, a lot clearer, but it is still important for that person to get tested at home. Uh, at any rate, decisions have to be made about how, what's the chances that a fine needle stick will give you HIV? One, what was that? Yeah, very close. One in 300, I think people are thinking about in that, in that area. Uh, so, there is various levels. I mean, you can get exposed to uh, HIV on mucosa, on skin. That's, uh, you know, that's why the universal precautions are so important. But here you go. You've got some serious problems when that happens. You need to provide immediate care of that site. You need to find out the nature of the exposure. I mean, how is it? How deep is it? But a, 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 mus a deep muscular uh, invasion with a blade or with an instrument is, is a serious exposure and probably needs certainly to be covered. If for some reason some added tests are drawn and you run them through another, you know, the more definitive test rather than the rapid and it turns out to be negative, and I recommend it, then you can stop the, the chemoprophylaxis. So at any rate, quickly, 
Anyone know what that is? That's a patient who knows how to yawn. That's what I would say. Anyhow, it's a dislocated, right? Dislocation of the temporomandibular joint. So uh, basically, uh, I, I think most of you sort of know how to, how to do that. I, I'm going to get Charlie and, and do a quickie here. But the most important thing for a, a, the dislocation is to try and get your fingers back. The sooner that's reduced, the better it is. Everything has been stretched. And, and basically, you want to push down because this is probably up, pulled up by both the masseters and the, and the uh, temporalis muscle. So the condyle is up and in front of the uh, eminence. And, and if you haven't done one of those, sometimes they can be very, very, very difficult. This is an example of sort of subluxation. Boy, it's on the verge. And this is too late. It's already out of the, of the socket area. So you, these powerful, these are powerful, your powerful chewing muscles. And you also have the uh, uh, internal pterygoid and the external pterygoids up there, both heads. And, and so these are pulled out, pulled forward, and uh, you, you want to press down as your initial movement so that you can get the condylar head in a position to go back and then start rotating it from that downward position so that you're tipping it back, you see, in, in that way, and then get it back there. But the other thing that's so important after you do that, and not doesn't mean it's going to go in easily. I mean, sometimes we have to use Valium or some other kind of medication to help sedate the patient. It's hard to work with them and, 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 and those kind of things. Sometimes we have to inject the joint area and the joint space to get some anesthetic back in there and, uh, and so forth. And, and, and other times it just won't go. It's been out too long. We often see patients like that. But once we get it back into position, it's nice to put a, a, some kind of a bandage on a Barton bandage or even temporary elastics, intermaxillary elastics to restrict the opening because they can dislocate again. They can just yawn and it come out. So it's very important to, to try and do that. I think for the sake of time, we'd like to just have a few if you folks have a few questions and, and anything that, I mean, it's sort of impossible to go through all the dental uh, sort of emergencies that you have, but Jeff and I would be happy to, to answer any questions that you have. I can't overemphasize the fact that information that, that Jeff has given regarding preparation beforehand is important. Because once you're out on the field, anything that you do before is called preparation. It's called information. And anything you do afterwards is called an excuse. You know, that, and there's a big difference between an excuse and preparation. So everything that you do ahead of time is so important. And, and Jeff is right on when he talks about the importance of that. And I'm so thankful for him bringing those things up because time and time again we have teams that have not prepared, done their homework, 
And because this gives added credibility, when you're out there, are you carrying the, brat, the flag of Sam Molind? I hope not. Aren't you carrying the, the banner of Christ? Amen. And does it, what does that mean? That everything is done with excellence, isn't it? Everything is done with, with care, the preparation, everything. Because it reflects on you as being what? The ambassador of Christ. Doesn't, doesn't Second Corinthians tell us that we're what? Ambassadors for Christ. So as ambassadors for Christ, we carry his banner. What is an ambassador? He carries the seal of what? Of the country. He has the what? Authority of the country. He's representing what? The country. And what are we then as his ambassadors? So important that we do everything with just excellence. So that, you know, no matter how careful we are, there's sometimes something that we slip up on and pray the Lord will forgive us and we'll learn to be more competent, more thoughtful, more considerate, more understanding, more compassionate, more loving, because we're representing the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Any questions? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your blessings, for your love, for the power that you Give us through your Holy Spirit. We know that all wisdom comes from you. And Lord, we're made ever aware that we can do nothing without you. And so, Lord, we are thankful for your faithfulness, for the wisdom that you give us, for the health and the wellness that we take so much for granted. Allow us, Lord, in our time, in our talent, and in our treasure to be a blessing to you. To be able to go to even the outermost parts of the earth for your glory. And Lord, we do have a heart to be a blessing to you. And so we ask that you would Give us the privilege, give us the honor of partnering with you, of being your ambassadors of reconciliation to a world that's unbelieving. And so we thank you, we praise you, we honor you, and we ask it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.